Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Is anyone here for here for the first time? Yeah. Welcome. Good to see you. And good to see everyone who's been here for the countless umpteenth time. <laughs> so I wanted to today, actually, I, I just for those of you who weren't here for the the brief announcements that happened after service, I made the announcement that we now have a Eno. What, what's an Eno? <laughs> the Eno is a, is a temple position, and the temple position of Eno is the bringer of joy. And I'm, I'm like laying it on, so Bruce is just like, oh. <laughs> So it's, a, it's an, a, a really wonderful role because it's the, the person who's the head of the meditation hall who makes sure that um, the meditation hall is well-staffed with people to ring the bells and announce chants, and that the cushions are you know, in good repair, and that we have a you know, steady stream of incense that we can you know, have for making offerings, and that um, you know, kind of oversees all of that, and trains people, actually trains people in uh, how to walk in the zendo, how to bow to their cushion, how to chant, how to basically participate in some of the Zen forms, in many of the Zen forms of our practice. Now, I know that people oftentimes have a love-hate relationship with forms and formality, right? And, uh, and a, a love-hate relationship with things like hierarchy and authority structures, right? Well, yeah, like, and Zen, in particular, more than anything I can think of, plays with that, right? It plays with, I think Zen has a huge, strict hierarchy. And at the same time, it's got the horizontal, right? So this is, uh, you can see this enacted ritually by when we do a bow to the altar and everyone's in gasho for the bow to the altar, and then we step, we turn and face each other and we do a, a bow with our hands down in this position, which is called shashu. And this is a horizontal position. So when we bow like this, we're bowing to the horizontality. So vertical and horizontal. So Zen is filled, filled with these kinds of things where you think it's one way and you're like, I don't know about this. Or, oh, this is the way, this is the true way. You know, and no, anything that you think about Zen is wrong, <laughs> or I should say, partially right. Okay, so this is this is where Suzuki Roshi's phrase "not always so" comes from. Right? Anything that you can get opinionated about or um, fixed in your views, like that, those are the places where we want to kind of poke at a little bit and play with them, tease them apart. Currently, we are in a practice period, which is uh, uh, the, the, the Japanese term for practice period is on-do, <coughs> which literally means it's the same on that's in the do-on, or the do-on-ryo. That's the group of people who uh, you know, play the bells and lead the chants and clean the incense bowl and, and so forth. Right, it's the same on, which means peace. So an on-go, or a practice period, is the, the literal description of it translation is peaceful abiding. 
peaceful abiding. So hopefully, that's, I mean, that's one of our biggest missions as a Zen center is to cultivate peaceful abiding, in starting with ourselves, starting with our own mind and our own body. Right? And that's, that's a big part of Zen right there. Right? I mean, even in popular culture, you can see this, like, find your Zen. Right? I don't know, I just made that up. <laughs> it should be, it's a good phrase. <laughs> um, so, so that's what we do here. And then a practice period is kind of, it's a, uh, one of the features of a practice period is that we have these one-day retreats. Last weekend, we had a one-day retreat. And it was uh, a little bit, not experimental, I would say, but it's the first time since I've been here that we started the retreat at a respectable time of six in the morning. <laughs> Usually we start it, we start retreats at eight. And in part, it's because, you know, what are you gonna do for breakfast? Are you gonna feed everybody breakfast? And it's like, well, yeah, actually we are. That's part of Zen, right? Is, is, it includes everything. It includes eating, it includes sleeping, it includes shitting, right? There's gattas for like, how to take a shit. <laughs> there's, and, and throughout the history of Zen, there's stories of how uh, Zen is so ordinary. It's ordinary. It's not beyond, you know, bodily functions. It's wherever you are in yourself, in the moment. You know, how do you maintain and extend your practice? Even when it's hard or difficult. And that's what a practice period uh, is designed to do, is to gather the, the collective energy of wanting to wake up Right? Wake up to what? What are we waking up to? We're waking up to ourselves, to what's most important in here. Right? That's, the, that's the, um, the promise, I guess, maybe, or the, uh, the lure, maybe? It can be a lure, like how do I wake up to my true nature? Right? Well, it turns out you do that with everybody. It's not something that you do, you know, on your own. Not to say that you don't practice on your own, but there is, even though that there's distinctions between myself and you and them, and it's all uh, completely interpenetrating and interconnected. What I think, what I do, how I carry myself will have an impact. This is just the nature of cause and effect. So during this practice period, we have, uh, we're teaching on the subject of uh, the threefold training of sila, samadhi, and prajna. Sila being, mm, let's see, it's a, it's a difficult one. Basically, you could call sila ethics or morality, uh, standards, but it's kind of misleading to call it that at the same time. We're doing a class on Sila. I'm teaching a class on Tuesday evenings. And one of the, uh, the first homework assignment was to, to take a look, read certain articles, and then to watch this one video by Gil Fransdahl, teacher, a Zen and Vipassana teacher uh, in California, where he talks about Sila. How many of you have listened to the video? All right. <laughs> so anyway, the, the video is available on the web forum. How many of you have been to the website? 
couple people. All right. If you uh, have been to the website and wonder what this little button on the top right side that says members forum or something, I portal. portal. <laughs> Member portal, I think it says. If you want to get access to that, just write to the web manager and say, give me a, uh, a username and password, and then you can access the web portal. The web portal has all the, you know, so for example, I post the, the readings, the discussion topics, some videos, things like that to the, that channel. But anyway, so we're doing this practice period on the Sila, Samadhi, and Prajna. Samadhi, so, so Sila is <coughs> ethics, or leading a good, actually maybe the better way to say Sila is, what are the ways in which we live in awakening to our true nature, which is completely interconnected with all beings? What are the best ways? How, how do we go forward? What principles do we have that help as help be guidelines to how do we live a, uh, a, an ethical or a good life? How do you live a good life? This is, you know, back to the question that, you know, Socrates or Aristotle, Plato, what is a good life? What is, in, what is involved in having a good life? Right? And when you look and, and consider this question, the intention, again, because this is the Zen Center, and our intention is to end suffering and to wake up, right? The question of how do I live a good life requires some meditation, right? And some thoughtfulness and taking a step back. And actually, it's not about how do you all live a good life? <laughs> it's how do I live a good life? How do my actions of my, my bodily actions, my, even my, the, what I, the thoughts that I, I have or that I keep coming back to or, or kind of I worry at certain thoughts, how does that impact my daily actions in the world? And how do I know how it's impacted? Like what kind of feedback do I get? Right? So that's the whole realm of sila. And in our school, we have the 16 bodhisattva precepts. Just this past week, uh, we had a full moon ceremony, which we do every month, where we come together and, and it's an elaborate ceremony of chanting and bowing and we make uh, the offerings at the altar. And we, we basically, as a community, we reavow our commitment to follow bodhisattva precepts. Um, so we've got the sila, and then samadhi. Samadhi, are you all familiar with the term samadhi? Does anyone not know what samadhi refers to? What does it sound like? Samadhi. Somebody. 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 And it means uh, roughly, it, I mean, basically it means concentration. It means meditative absorption, something that all of us have experienced, whether we know it or not, right? We've all had that, uh, the dropping away of a, a self or self-concern, and actually things are flowing, and we feel on point in this kind of concentrated state. Right? It could happen when we're walking our dog. It could happen when we're brushing our teeth. Right? There's, you could get into a, a, it's a... It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing where you, you are awake and alive and 
concentrated. And this idea of like, oh, how am I doing? You know, all that rubbish <laughs> falls away in this absorption. So we cultivate samadhi by our meditation practice. Right? When we sit and we, we enter the, the doors of the Zen Center, for example, as one place of meditation, right? we're automatically kind of turning a little bit inward and, and focusing on our own mental, physical, psychophysical states. Right? And we carve out that time for you know, most periods of zazen here are 35 minutes. We carve out that time and we sit upright. We take up a posture of awakening, right? We're not like this when we're sitting zazen. Yeah. We sit with our chest open, our heart open, our breathway open. We have our spine long and we're vertebrae are stacked. It's a yogic posture to sit in zazen, whether you're sitting on a chair or sitting on a cushion. And then we watch, we carefully watch, lovingly, mindfully, carefully watch our breath and our minds. And we allow whatever's happening to come up. We witness it, we acknowledge, and we let it go. And we do this for 35 minutes. It's a wonderful thing to do that um, I can't imagine not doing, actually. Sometimes, as Blanche Hartman, the founder of this temple, said, sometimes life is such that you just have to sit down and take it in. <laughs> and that's basically what zazen is. It's taking a seat and taking it in and letting it go. And it's something, some, something in us that's... Uh, that's worrying or that's unsatisfied, something in us when we give ourselves this gift of this time, something drops away. Not always. Sometimes when you sit meditation, the thing that's the most uh, apparent is your ego self and it's nattering kind of blah, 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 blah. You know, that's what comes up the most. And in Zazen, if that's what's happening, we witness it, we acknowledge it, we welcome it, but we don't feed it. In contrast, this, uh, I mentioned in the announcements that this Wednesday on Halloween, we will, we will be holding a ceremony here. It is the ceremony of Sajiki. It's a traditional Japanese Zen Buddhist ceremony where we... Um, it's an honoring of our ancestors ceremony, but it's actually, it's an opening up a wider uh, invitation to the shadow. The shadow seen in the image of a hungry ghost. Anybody here, have you anybody, anyone here not know what a hungry ghost is? Intellectually or experientially? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so a hungry ghost intellectually, do you have an intellectual answer? No, but some experiential answers. <laughs> can, you, can you say a, just a little bit about an experience of a hungry ghost? Um, hungry ghost can never get enough. It's a constant need, and the more it gets, the more it wants, the more it needs. It's, uh, I guess, its strongest manifestation would be in addiction. Mm -hmm. Yes. But we, we all have addictions, I think. It's a 
Yeah, whether they're addictions to substances, to uh, people, to patterns of thinking, right? We get caught. We get caught, and I think the key part of a hungry ghost is the feeling of lack, the feeling of not enough, like nothing's going to satisfy this, you know, this feeling. We have, uh, as part of our ceremony, we've in, in our invitations to bring in these unsatisfiable parts of ourselves or parts of the world. Uh, in front of the, coming into the zendo, you can't see them from here, Rich can see them, but we have two hungry ghosts uh, gracing our, our archway right now. And so you can see them, but they're, the way they're depicted, they have very big bellies and very tiny necks or very small mouths. So they have these huge appetites and they cannot be satisfied because they can't eat enough, right? They've got little tiny mouths. It's very sad. <laughs> Ritualistically, and this is one big aspect of Zen practice, is the practice of ritual. Ritualistically, when we, uh, you know, just just the, the putting your hands together in gasho is a ritual. Uh, Rev. Anderson from the San Francisco Zen Center considers zazen itself a ritual, and it and others too. It's a ritual enactment of awakening. It's a ritual enactment of like what the Buddha did when the Buddha sat and said, I'm not going to get up from this seat until I, until I wake up to my delusions. Right? What a wonderful thing to do, to sit in, uh, in samadhi and wake up to the third of the threefold training, which is wisdom. This morning, our service that we chant, um, this practice period is on these threefold training, the sila, samadhi, and prajna, wisdom being prajna, but, you know, in terms of like, well, what makes the practice period about sila, samadhi, and prajna? And I'm just, since we started the practice period just a week ago, I'm noticing all the little ways in which what we do just generally as part of our practice together embodies and, and extends the practice of sila, samadhi, and prajna. Just in terms of what we chanted this morning in our chant, the first chant we chanted was, a, was a, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. Right? And it's an homage, it's, it's an honoring of wisdom. Right? Wisdom to see things uh, unadorned, matter of fact, uh, without substance. Everything changes, everything is connected. Pay attention. That's the the threefold <laughs> steps to wisdom. And then we chant the Shosaimyo Kichijo Durrani, which is a Durrani for removing the hindrances to our practice. Right? When we reflect on what, what helps, what's beneficial in my waking up versus what's not so beneficial. Usually when people ask these questions of themselves, they put the not beneficial things into like the bad camp and the beneficial things into this kind of glorified state of like these are good things and these are bad things, right? Well, as I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, Zen plays with these things. So when you say, oh, this is good or this is bad, what's the not always so? What's the good within the bad? What's the bad within the good? 
there's a line in the Sando Kai, the uh, harmony of difference and equality. When one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. That is from the Sando Kai, right? Sorry. <laughs> when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark, like the front and back foot in walking, right? So not always so. I had intended today to do a little bit of a, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about the practice period. But even if you're not, you know, but even if you're not in the practice period, there is a feeling of when the gathering is happening, the gathering of hearts and minds. That's the the term when we do a retreat. It's called a sashin, which literally means the gathering of a heart of hearts and minds. Okay, we gather them together. And the practice period is a gathering of people and their intentions. Their intentions to, um, you know, there's certain things that are part of the practice period, like participating in the daily schedule here. We offer five periods of meditation daily during the week, except on Fridays, and then on Saturdays. Yeah, so to basically to show up for yourself, for your own practice, which includes everyone. It includes everyone else in the practice, doing the practice with you. The, um, the practice happens by putting ourselves into it, by physically putting ourselves into uh, practice with one another. So, and uh, I'm gonna, Sandra, I'm gonna say your story from this Sashin, this last retreat. So one of the things that we did this uh, last retreat is that we ate uh, all we ate breakfast and lunch with our with our orioki bowls, which is a three bowl nesting set that's wrapped up in claws, and you're served food in the zendo, and you eat your food, you take your food as a ceremony, where there's homages, you're you're honoring the ancestors while you're chanting before you receive the food, when you receive the food, you you know, the first bite of the food actually goes to uh, the, the bodhisattva of wisdom. Before anyone else takes a bite, the first kind of little, little tiny, tiny bowls go up to the altar and, and are put out in front of the bodhisattva of wisdom. And then there's chanting, and then finally we all bow and take our first bite together. This is a practice, I mean, you could say it's a practice of mindfulness. It is a practice of mindfulness, but it's not just a practice of mindfulness. To be eating, to taking food, taking nourishment as a meditation. Right? When's the last time you ate where you took food in as a meditation? It's pretty profound. And the amazing thing, and this is where Sandra comes in, a couple days after the retreat, one of the participants who was here uh, was remarking on the impact of having done two meals using this method of eating mindfully. Like you're, you're eating in zazen posture. You're in posture, sitting posture, and you're taking your food in, right? And you're dedicating the nourishment to all beings. It's like setting an intention while, through, the, through the process of taking food in. And so a couple days later, uh, Sanja reflected that after, like she was like, yeah, usually I'm, I'm eating, I'm kind of like multitasking, I'm reading a book, reading the paper, and taking my food. 
But like, I couldn't do that. I had to like stop and like be with my food. <laughs> it was lovely. It was lovely. And it, and it actually, it made me feel like, yes, this is working. <laughs> uh, so um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the practice, so how the, so this, that's kind of how practice works in terms of, and, and our, you know, have a, having the service, I haven't gotten to the end of the service. So first chant on wisdom. The second chant is on the removal of the obscurations to our practice, so new removal of hindrances. May the things that, that lead us uh, away from waking up, you know, be removed. That's the, you know, that, that chant, the Shosai-myo chant is, uh, is for that purpose. And basically, in Zen, one of the main things that, if there's one thing that you don't, you, that you sh to understand about Zen, I think it's that, it's, it's expressed as Suzuki Roshi expressed it in, you are perfect just the way you are. And we can all use a little improvement. Perfect just the way we are. Our true nature when not, not hindered by our greed, our hatred, and our delusion, is bright and shining and open and doesn't see separation, so is incredibly empathic, connected, compassionate, gentle, and kind. That's the one thing, I think, in Zen that's necessary to believe. And if you don't believe it, which again, it's not something that's just like, here, here's the thing that you need to believe. No, 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 not always so. How do you really believe something? What leads to trusting that you are perfect? What obscures that, that trust? So the Shosanyo, there's removal of hindrance is removing the obstacles to your trusting your true nature, which is open and vibrant and creative and courageous, compassionate. Right? What are the things that, imagine if everyone truly believed that, that they had within themselves awakeness a lack of hatred, a lack of greed, a lack of delusion. And those are huge things to, that are huge obstacles, right? So, and then there's this question that uh, in the history of Zen, our ancestor in Japan, Dogen Zenji, asked this question, well, if I'm already perfect the way, just the way I am, what need is there to practice? Why would I sit? So this is an ancient question, right? Why would you then go through this, this uh, you know, grueling sashins where your legs are hurting and your butt's aching? Why would you do that to yourself? Peter, do you have a, I thought, no idea. You, have, you have no idea. Because <laughs> we all need a little improvement. Because we all know. Well, that's the yeah, idea. Yeah, that could be that could be one thing that gets us in the door, right? It may very well be that what gets us in the door to a retreat, to sitting a retreat, is you know this will be good for me. 
uh, it will make me even better <laughs> than I already am. <laughs> right? It could be that that's what gets us in the door. Anyone else have an, uh, an idea of why would we sit? Why would we sit? To help you see it. To help us see it. To help us see our true nature. How about to honor our true nature? To celebrate it. I, I mentioned before, it's the, the giving of a gift to ourselves. So one of the things that happens in the beginning of a practice period is I hand everybody a, a piece of paper that has the list of the different things that practices that one might take up. There's a list of the daily schedule here. There's a list of the different retreats that are happening, the different ceremonies that are happening. And then we have a practice period meeting uh, on Wednesday nights and uh, Saturdays after the Dharma talk. We have a practice period meeting where we talk about, you know, we might be talking about our practice in different ways as a group or, you know, we might be having a talk or a group kind of uh, discussion or we might be hearing from people talking about their practice. So we do, but we, again, it's, it's a practice group meeting together, right? We do this, um, you know, I give them this piece of paper and one of the things that's asked on the piece of paper is what are you doing in your practice at home? What kind of practices can you take up at work with your families? What practices are you taking up that are physical practices, like that are embodied practices, right? And I know many people have a, a, a yoga practice or a rock climbing practice, which is, uh, brings them into a state of concentration and um, alignment, balance, right? So there's lots of different ways to incorporate different practices. And all of them are in the service of creating an intention. Or not really creating. Creating maybe is not the right word. Maybe it's looking within and finding what exists as an intention. Right? And then watering those seeds. That is what a practice period does. The watering of seeds. Right? We plant these seeds. These are the intentions that we plant. And then we get to water them, or not. And then we, then we get to see what happens when we stop watering them. Oh, it's very sad when that happens. But, it's, but again, it's not something that is outside of practice. It's not like, oh, I'm no longer practicing because I didn't water my seeds. Right. It's actually, we get to see the impact. We get to see the consequences of our own activity for good or for ill, you know, it's like if we're trying to grow this beautiful uh, Buddha tree <laughs> and we don't water the, the little sapling and it starts to shrivel, you know, we might notice that and be like, oh, I didn't water my Buddha tree today. And it's, you know, it's kind of wilting. And then it's not like that's when practice stops where you have to just like water it, you know, just just water it and then you know you don't have to worry about it anymore it's actually much more um, much more dynamic than that because then you get to see what happens next oftentimes and I uh, we're gonna have a practice period meeting today so those of you who are in the practice period get ready 
<laughs> you get to see your own reaction to yourself for having, like, you know, failed, failed at what you had set out to do. Like, oh, I said I was going to do this thing, and then I didn't. Right? How do you treat yourself in that moment? With what mind do you acknowledge that you didn't do what you wanted to do? I don't know about you, but I think for most people, there's this feeling of like, I failed, I'm bad, I, you know, I shouldn't show my face at the Zen Center ever again. <laughs> and people, and this is part of what happens when people start practicing, is like, how do I, how do I cultivate this awakeness in myself? And then we get to see all the ways in which we don't. And that's even sometimes more important than being able to see the ways in which we do. Again, it depends. It depends on what's where you are in your practice and what's encouraging, what's discouraging, right? And we learn from what's discouraging as much as we learn from what's encouraging. It's just harder. It's harder to maintain the course when we're, if we're feeling beaten down by ourselves, right? Because the judgment's not coming from someone else. The Buddha's not sitting there judging you. <laughs> Right? It's internal, but we get to struggle with our own demons. Which brings me back to this Jiki ceremony that's happening on Wednesday, where we, as I mentioned in the, in the uh, announcements earlier, this ceremony is this ceremony of honoring all of it, all different sides, all different aspects, but particularly taking great care, right? In terms of the removal of hindrances, one of the biggest hindrances that we have in our practice is a feeling of self-doubt uh, or self-judgment. All the ugly parts that we don't want to acknowledge, right? My, my own habit energy, my karmic hindrances, right? So this is an opportunity to also just look at, take a good... Um, compassionate look all the things in, internally right that we want to exile or you know lock up in a basement and throw away the key right it's like no actually how can we be able to sit with everything all of our feelings all of our mm, delusions when we sit with our delusions we get to see well, the, the key part of sitting with delusion is to see delusion as delusion. They say, uh, in the Genjo Koan, Dogen Zenji says, you know, to, um, what's that phrase? There are those who are enlightened about delusion. The Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. So when we wake up to our own delusions, our own fixed views about myself or other, really it comes down to this kind of egoic selfing that we do, where we think of ourselves as uh, a fixed, independently existent, unchanging essence. Right? That does damage. That, that belief has a damaging impact for change which is inevitable. Everything changes. Right? How do we grow? How do we grow and 
develop? How does the Buddha tree seed grow, right? With a sprinkling of our attention, our care, our compassion, our awareness. The last thing I wanted to, to talk about, actually, I wanted to do a kind of, uh, just a brief sort of, uh, I don't really want to call it a state of the union, but um, I wanted to mention that last year, about a year and a month ago, maybe it was in September, I think, gosh, it's already the end of October, um, we did a... Um, we had a meeting here at the Zen Center of, basically, we called in everyone who had been involved in some aspect of leadership within the organization. So people who lead the, the sittings, the people who teach the beginner's instruction, um, people who volunteer, uh, run the garden, or people who ring the bells, um, lead chants. And we had a meeting of these people, I can't remember how many there were, maybe 30 people, and we did a brainstorm of what are the main priorities of the Austin Zen Center going forward, right? And we came up with, well, there was a, there was a list that was, I think it was created by Bruce and I, did we create this list? Or we had a, we, we brainstormed, Bruce and I brainstormed like what are the poss these possible things that people are, would think of as priorities, and then we, sent out a survey to the community and then we had a we had a you know an afternoon meeting with a group of us to discuss them and i just wanted to check back to swing back to that because we haven't really talked about the the you know the priorities that we had then but i wanted to just swing back and say that in terms of our priorities we had a number of them i have let's see two four six eight ten ten priorities were listed at the time and I'll, I'll read them right now. The, some of the priorities are, uh, we, had a, we were in the process of hiring a organization called the Faith Trust Institute to do a, an assessment about events that had happened over the course of several years back, the past four, four years, um, to look at uh, our, the, the ethics of our organization and what our, our ethical guidelines and our policies are. So that, that process was started and completed as of last spring. Um, so that was, that was one of the organizational priorities. Another priority was the uh, priority of selecting a head teacher for the Austin Zen Center because it was at a, this, about a year ago, I think Robert Thomas was the interim head teacher here after Kosho had stepped uh, down and moved I guess he moved to India at that point after he stepped down. So Kosho was not here, and then in, and Robert Thomas was from the San Francisco Zen Center was here for about six months or a year, was it? Something like that. Six months? No, it was nine months because he was yeah he was here for nine months. So the question of a head teacher, like who is the head teacher of the Austin Zen Center, that came up as a priority. Another priority came up was the priority of governance and kind of hammering out some of the details of how the, or the governance structures of the Austin Zen Center work. Um, another priority was the priority of transparency because during the years when uh, a lot of the unrest, there, were a lot, there was a lot of unrest, one of the big things that came up in the community surveys was that there's not enough transparency from the leadership structures of the Austin Zen Center. 
So that became a priority. And then another priority, another question that came up was my role here and what, what was my role? Um, so that, that, came, that was actually the highest priority that was in terms of the survey when we surveyed the community that turned out to be the highest priority. Um, a financial, uh, our financial well-being came up as a priority as well. Like how are we doing financially as an organization? Um, and then another priority, which was another very high one, was what is the Zen training that we offer here at the Austin Zen Center? Um, committees, establishing like a membership committee and a development committee and a communications IT, uh, building and grounds. There's lots of committees that we, you know, that came up as a as one possible priority. Um, another one was hiring a director having somebody be in a director position at the Zen Center. And then the last one was a community healing after having gone through a period of a lot of uh, turmoil and pain and hurt. People went through, there's a lot of hurt that happened in the shifting of leadership and people stepping down, people being uh, asked to leave, so forth. Um, so of those, I have to say that we have been doing over the past year, and uh, I just want to give a big bow and thank you to Ernest over here. He's been our fearless leader on the board for the past year, taking up the helm at a very challenging time, actually, and um, and steering the board to you know to these organizational priorities. The um, I guess I wanted to bring this up because. Looking at these priorities now, I feel like we've, we've done a great deal of work on almost all of them. In fact, the, the ones, the two that had the, lo the lowest kind of, there, actually there's three priorities that did not, within the surveys, didn't come up as being a very high priority or important. And those are the um, full committees, which I have to say is kind of sad because we do need committees. We do. <laughs> yeah, Doris is like, yeah, we do. Uh, we haven't done so much good work in terms of just developing committees, although that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of internal board committees that have been developed, a governance committee, there's a committee for, there's a, now we have an elders council, which is not really a committee, but it's a council of senior Dharma teachers um, and members of this community. Um, the Faith Trust Institute process was one of the lowest priorities but we did, we, we res, we've done that, that process that's been completed. Um, and then the community healing, having some kind of a, a way for anyone who had been through a process of um, despairing at the state of this organization or the state of leadership or the, the Sangha communications, the board communications, to have some kind of way of, of doing some kind of community healing event around that. That was the lowest priority that was listed a year ago. But I would have to say that the question of what do we do as a community healing still comes up. And so it's, it's still alive, but unsure, we're unsure how to address it, given that most of the people who are even in this room weren't living through the time of unrest and don't know anything about don't need any healing around it because they're not, they weren't embroiled. Right? And then there's some people who were embroiled, and those people may need some kind of, or may benefit from some acknowledgement of, yeah, that was a rough time. 
right? So we're not sure. That's still uh, open. In terms of transparency, I would like to ask all of you how you feel about our transparency. I feel like we've been doing, and I know some of you don't like the word transparency. It's, it's got this, I don't know, some people really like the word transparency, some people really don't like the word transparency. But anyway, for transparency's sake, <laughs> the transparency part of our practice is to be open about how decisions are made instead of having decisions maybe made behind closed doors or you know, in these like secret deals or you know, who knows. But just being open and communicative about our processes. So one of the things that Ernest spearheaded when we started working on these priorities was greater communication about the decision making of the board itself. So all of our board meetings are posted regularly on the bulletin board in the, in the just below the stairs and, or next to the stairway and also on the web forum. Um, governance structures are, are also, there's a governance committee who's been working diligently for, for months now to, to develop our guidelines or whatever our standards of ethical department are here and to come up with some way to have the community be able to participate in those conversations as well. Financially, I think that we're doing okay. We're doing all right financially. Not great because I think we're not actually at a point where we're sustainable, but we're close. We're close. And I have to say that given that the in the time of unrest, we lost a, a number of our donors, right? In fact, we lost our three top donors. So given that we lost our three top donors who had been financially supporting the Austin Zen Center for many, many, since, since, since its inception, um, the fact that we are where we are right now and able to, you know, able to almost sustain ourselves um, is a really, it's, it's very good. We're doing very well financially given given the, that loss. In terms of our Zen training, um, I don't know. I, I would like to see say that, that is the number one priority that I have, is the Zen training aspect. And um, if there's any questions that anybody has or any training that anybody wants, you know, please, please bring it up. Please talk to me about it. But I, I would like, because I'm, I'm here. Koji is here. Tim is not here right now, but he's here too, and so is Pat, even though she's not here. <laughs> Pat, Pat is doing, a, she's driving across the Texas. I'm gonna say the, the Texas. She's driving across the Texas on her way to, um, to just outside Albuquerque where she's gonna be sitting a retreat. She can't get enough retreats. <laughs> she did that one last weekend. Um, and then also uh, Tim Kroll is in Sonoma leading a young urban Zen retreat in California this weekend. So they're not here. Um, but in terms of the Zen training, having four people here who are practice leaders and available for practice discussions, available for training in, in roles, uh, that's, that's pretty damn healthy. I have to say, I'm very happy about that. And we've hired a director. 
Tim Kroll has been is uh, our new director. He's fabulous. He has office hours across the street. Um, he's available as a practice leader as well. So, in terms of looking at our priorities now, what are our priorities going forward today? I just wanted to drop that seed into all of you to you know, think about what, is, what do you feel like the priorities ought to be of uh, the Zen Center going forward? And if you have, uh, we do have a suggestion box, which has, is pretty dusty. Nobody seems to put anything into it. But please, please feel free to put some suggestion into the suggestion box. And uh, we will dutifully read it and consider it. Um, and then, okay, the last thing I would just want to do before ending is to mention that um, as part of the practice period, the last thing, the sort of the last event of the practice period is Buddha's enlightenment ceremony. That's kind of a, like the last public event of the practice period. And it comes at the end of seven days of sitting. We have a rohatsu, it's called rohatsu, which literally means... Ooh. Eighth. Sorry. Eighth. Thank you. Eighth <laughs> like, of the ten. Ich ni san go. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's the eighth day of uh, the month, which is heralded as the day that the Siddhartha Gautama woke up under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India. And we sit for seven days, and actually it's more a little bit more than seven when we sit here, because we'll start on the evening before. But we'll sit that time and have Dharma talks and uh, we'll be well fed by our Tenzo over there. And um, we practice together, we practice awakening together for those seven days, commemorating the Buddha's own seven days of sitting, or seven weeks, or yeah, depending on what what story you read. And we culminate that practice period in a Buddha's Enlightenment Ceremony, which everybody is welcome to come to. It will be held on a Saturday, probably up to noon on a Saturday, Saturday on the eighth day of the month this year. That's when we'll hold that, uh, that ceremony. And I'm happy to report that we are 90% sure we will be having, uh, we've invited uh, my teacher, Ryushin Paul Haller, who's a former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, we've invited him to come be here for that rohatsu. And he is 90% sure he will do that, <coughs> which is wonderful to have someone that for, here for that chunk of time. So I encourage everybody to come sit for rohatsu, even if you can sit only one day. It will start on a Friday night and end on the following Saturday. And um, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful time. It'll be in the winter when it's cold, and we talked about this at the beginning of our retreat this past weekend of like the feeling of the weather turning and how it supports us in our own internal turning, turning inwards. So um, may it be so that he's able to come for that. Huh. All right. Sorry I didn't take any questions. But I will be around. Thank you very much.